Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports professor Rick Harrow inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, getting bigger every week. Horse racing, international soccer, getting ready for the World Cup, basketball, hockey, baseball heating up, football draft, all the big issues summarized, deal-making issues, three to one. Three. Adidas and Foot Locker announced a new long-term strategic partnership. The two announced new and enhanced partnerships built around innovation, elevated experiences, and deeper consumer connectivity. The enhanced relationship will establish Foot Locker as the lead partner for Adidas in the basketball category, accelerate energy and hype launches, as well as include the development and expansion of key franchises across women's kids and apparel, including all Foot Locker banners in North America, Asia Pacific, and otherwise the new strategic partnership will target over $2 billion in retail sales by 2025, nearly tripling levels from 2021. And in 2022, Adidas expects to generate incremental revenue up to 100 million euros as a result of the new partnership. Foot Locker will also lead Adidas's basketball offering, led by Fear of God founder and designer Jerry Lorenzo, spanning the lifestyle and performance categories and develop exclusive positions in both areas. That's deal-making issue number three. Two. Caesars and the Chicago White Sox partnered together, making Caesars their exclusive sports book. The sports agreement with the MLB team from Chicago will allow Caesars and the book to access official logos and marks of the Sox, rotational LED signage at the stadium, digital and social media assets, and a range of exclusive experiences of the franchise available through the operator's industry-leading loyalty program, Caesars Rewards. Stressing the iconic status of the White Sox, Caesars CEO Tom Rieg outlined the perfect timing for the business to align with the franchise that has some of the most passionate fans in the country. Caesars can provide White Sox fans and sports fans across the state with the very best in sports experiences through our world-class resorts and recent relaunch of the Caesars Sportsbook app, now available for mobile registration. In addition to the prominent TV-visible fixed signage featuring Caesars' premier gaming destinations and a fixed channel lettering on the video board at the ballpark, the partnership with the Sox also includes integration into the team's marketing and promotion efforts, official merchandise, and future experiences, and will bring fans through the Caesars Sportsbook app Exciting offers and promotions. One. Number one, Drew Brees continues to expand his impressive business portfolio following his retirement from the NFL. He joined Fox Sports, busy expanding his business portfolio. The former Saints quarterback and future Hall of Famer has a new partnership with the Southern California-based Kraft Superfood chain Everbowl. Brees' investment will increase to 85 Everbowl grocery stores in the South and Midwest, According to a recent press release, 15 stores added in Tennessee, 10 in Virginia, to complement his original 60-store deal. Breeze currently has five locations in Louisiana, 10 in Illinois, and a combined 15 in Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. He's an investor in several best-of-class franchise businesses within the restaurant and fitness spaces, 
and he's fully aligned with Everbowl's mission. I wholeheartedly support the deal. He was first drawn to their history, tasty meal options, and the more he saw, the more he realized that it would appeal from an investor's perspective. Certainly, Drew Brees and other NFL players branching out and becoming more entrepreneurial. All the focus today on football, past the draft, and beyond. How about the good old-fashioned Cutter World Cup football? The guy that basically resurrected it or created it or expanded it in America, Alan Rothenberg, 1996 Atlanta Olympics women gold medal at University of Stanford Stadium. He saw something, clearly the 1994 World Cup, $350 million budget, the most successful in FIFA history, overseen, overcame cynicism, started part of the starting founding group of the MLS in 95 and 96, president of U.S. Soccer, 90 to 98, Women's World Cup as well. We'll hear Marla Messing weigh in on that later this month. Now with Premier Partnerships, cut his teeth at Latham and Watkins, the firm, and the L.A. Lakers as early as 1971. Philanthropy, entrepreneurialism, Alan Rothenberg has so much to tell us. Here he is now. So start the long story. Um, when did you decide, so... Um, uh, people who are friends from Michigan would love the idea of the undergrad and law school as a Wolverine. You started at Absolutely. the University of Michigan. And then when during that time majored in business, probably? No. Go ahead. I majored in history. I went to law school. I came out thinking I'd be a litigator. There was no such thing as a sports lawyer yes, at that time. Yes, that's correct. We know that. Uh, yeah, I, we know that. I, I was it before I even realized that's yes. what I was. Yes. Well, an interesting dynamic, I was told in law school with me that I could write a third-year paper, but it would have to be something that's not sports because, quote, there is no such thing as sports law. How about that for positive reinforcement? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. got into it, believe it or not, in 1967. Oh, that's When thrilling. you talk about the trillions yeah. of dollars yeah. in the economy, yeah. I was asked by Jack Kent Cook to be his lawyer. I was 28 years old, just a couple of years out of law school, uh, and here I am working for a man who has the Lakers, the Kings, building the Forum, owns uh, then a minority and ultimately 100% of the Washington, then Redskins. Yeah, then Redskins. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, I was just thrown into it. I was a huge sports fan. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, when I took the job, he had an understandable and acceptable reputation as being a very difficult man to work for. You took the risk. Yeah, and I sat there and I thought, geez, there's a good chance... You know, he'll chew me up and spit me out, and yeah. there I will be a, another lawyer, you know, trying to earn a living. But if I didn't do it, I'd probably look over my shoulder for the rest of my life and say, what if, what if? So I said, what the heck? I did it. I did it well. I, I did it full-time for him for a couple of years, then went back into law practice and continued to represent him, and then later all kinds of athletes and teams and leagues and events. Though the meeting was happenstance, was, was that at Latham and Watkins, or how did that No, it was work? before that. Actually, I started at O'Melveny and Myers. Okay. And they represented Cook. Yeah. Uh, and he was buying all these things, and he had said to his primary lawyer, uh, you know, I need somebody in-house, the kind of right-hand man lawyer, yeah. uh, to help me. Uh, and just by happenstance, the man who had interviewed me in Ann Arbor brought me out, uh, a tax lawyer. I, I knew nothing about taxes, right. but he kind of took a, a liking to me. And he yeah. said, we've got a young man who was here, had left in that time I'd started a law firm with Chuck Burnett and Tom Phelps. Uh, and, you know, I know he's a big sports fan. He's real smart. Uh, 
I'll recommend them uh, to, to you, Jack, and that's how it happened. That's an unbelievable story that explains how a lot of people got into the sports law wild, wild, wild west business when there was no such thing. Yeah, right? and when you're talking about the trillions, just to put people in perspective, yeah. so I go in there, two years before, Gail Goodrich had been uh, the uh, MVP of the Final Four uh, first draft choice uh, in the NBA, and his uh, salary, as I looked at the contract, $16,500. Uh, a week. <laughs> oh, no, a season. And then uh, it Did was, you do the negotiations? No, I, I inherited that contract. Okay, okay. I, I did some other ones yeah, that were right. a lot of fun, but no, I, I did that just to, to put the dollars in perspective. Yeah, 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 sure. I think it was two years, in, oh, it was when the Lakers finally were in the forum. Yeah. They had a box office one day a gate of $100,000. First time in NBA history that anybody had a $100,000 gate. <laughs> so, did, did you see, and we'll talk about the, we have more than enough time to do other stuff, but did you see the vision in the early 70s, and I guess you were VP and general counselor from, so 71 through 79, and then the Clippers, did you have any idea that the NBA would be as big and as global as it is today? Uh, I don't think anybody did yeah. except maybe David Stern. Yeah. Uh, it, right. You know, it kept growing incrementally. Remember, in the 70s, it was, in, it was on the rocks. Yeah. Uh, they actually had retained bankruptcy lawyers to look into the efficacy of going through some kind of Chapter 11 proceeding. Basically, Magic uh, and Bird saved him, and then Jordan came right after that. Because, and that, you know, to his credit, David was smart enough uh, to basically – Promote the players. Up until then, the, the gap between owners and players is kind of like, unfortunately, what it may be in baseball and other yeah. sports today. He basically said, our sport's going to depend on these players, and he really promoted them, and obviously uh, that really just relaunched the NBA and took it to the point where it is now. In fairness of full disclosure, you like to talk about the Lakers, so let's talk about the Clippers. Sure. What, what did you do with, for, or despite them? Well, it was very interesting <laughs> because Donald Sterling had acquired the Clippers, uh, was doing, in San Diego, was doing everything possible wrong. Uh, David Stern and I had known each other as young lawyers. I was a l lawyer for the Lakers. He was at that time a young lawyer yeah. representing the NBA. Right. Uh, so, you know, we'd been colleagues all that time. David called uh, Donald and said, Donald, go hire Alan Rothenberg. He'll straighten you out. Um, that was in 1982. I thought that advice would be a kiss of death, but I guess yeah, it would follow. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. The, believe me, it was not easy. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, and one of the things that Sterling had done uh, that got him into trouble was he had attempted to move the team to Los Angeles without the league's permission. Mm. The league got an injunction, you know, sent him back right. to San Diego. Right. In the interim... The Raiders suit against the NFL was successful, created a, uh, for a brief period of time till the leagues could change their bylaws, an opening uh, to move the team without the league's permission. So uh, in 1984, uh, I brought uh, the Clippers up to Los Angeles, uh, and uh, that, you know, <laughs> that began about a seven-year lawsuit between the NBA and the Clippers. Interestingly enough, David a lawyer yeah, himself, sure. uh, and I were always friends. He, you know, it wasn't. He, I was doing what I should do for and, a client. And he knew that because he wasn't going to say, "What are you doing? Why are you doing this?" Wait no. a minute. When he <laughs> retired, they had a small dinner for him yeah, at the St. Regis, and it was all NBA insiders. Yeah. There was only a couple of us that weren't right from the NBA family. 
I was invited, and David, in his inimitable fashion, is going around the room ribbing everybody. Yeah, and, and he gets to me, he said, who invited Rothenberg? <laughs> he said, he represented the two owners, yeah. Cook and Sterling, who gave me more, more trouble, trouble than, anybody, than anybody in history. Yeah, but, but you had a great... Um, 1970s uh, uh, awareness and education of what basketball was all about. Let, let's segue. Let's segue to to soccer. By well, what, what was the first vision or inkling that you were going to you know spend your life doing what you did in soccer? Um, it, it just happened again. Yeah. Uh, in 1966, the World Cup was broadcast by satellite into the United States. First satellite telecast of an event like that. That got a lot of sports owner promoters to think, ah, the next sport, 66. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they started a, a soccer league. I'm 28 years old. I'm working for Cook. And believe me, there's not a lot of spare time when you're working for a guy like yeah, Jack yeah. Cook. And he turns to me, uh, I'd never seen a soccer game in my life, let alone played it. He said, look after this team for me. So I'm the general manager of a soccer team. Was this the one where they <laughs> borrowed European teams? Yeah, they there? borrowed European teams. Uh, the first year, because they had to do it in a hurry. Then the second year, they put their own teams together. Right. That's where I was in charge. Cook uh, bowed out after the second year. And, they, and he asked you to put uh, players together? Oh, yeah. He, wow. In 1968. And soccer he gave, really does survive after he, all that? Yeah, yeah. He gave me, <laughs> this is hysterical. He gives me, a, a, I think it was like a, less than a half a million dollar budget. Uh, and he sends me off to England with a contact. I didn't even have a passport at yeah, that yeah. time. And he's, his parting words were, you get a team for me, and I have my pride. This better be a good team. Oh so I go there, yeah. and I hire a, a coach who was really prominent. Uh, and with the money that's left after his salary, I, I give that rest to him. And I said, and now you bring me that team, <laughs> and I have my pride. <laughs> it better be a good team. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, we lasted that one year. Yeah. He got out. That was my introduction to soccer. Um, in 84... Uh, excuse me, before that. Yeah. In the 70s, when yeah. the cosmos lit the world on fire, right. sure. uh, a group of us thought, aha, this is the time. Mm -hmm. And we put a limited partnership together, bought the LA Aztecs, mm -hmm. um, but we couldn't keep up with Warners, which owned, yeah, which, which owned the cosmos. Right. So after a few years that were a lot of fun, but financially disastrous, we bowed. In between, I did nothing in soccer. I was doing a lot of other sports. Do you remember, by the way, t was there a whole revenue share? I mean, this was not an NFL model. It no, was and, and, almost and, like Premier League, the well, top guys. And, yeah, and by the, the way, that, a lot of the lessons I learned there and the lessons that I learned from the Olympics right. uh, are what caused me to, when I created Major League Soccer, to create it as a single entity. Yeah. Uh, because what, it, was just, it was the Wild West in uh, the old NASL, yeah. uh, and they expanded way too fast mainly because they wanted to have a f footprint in enough places nationally for a good television contract. Right. But, it, you know, as I said, we were a group of just working stiffs <laughs> in a limited yeah, partner right. trying to keep up with a huge uh, public company that right. was doing it not just because they loved it, but they had a lot of executives, yeah. in, particularly in the music business, with those English acts. And it yeah. was as much to get the acts yeah. as it was anything else. Yeah. So, we, so you're segueing now, and the Olympics... Then what happened in, yeah. in, in, in 84, the Olympics are in L.A., and Peter Yubroff, among the really smart things that he yeah. did, um, he knew he couldn't for two or three years get prominent people busy in their careers to give up and, and volunteer. So he came up with a concept that he would appoint a commissioner, sort of a super volunteer, for each sport in each venue. Then he would hire the junior staff, if you will. 
you really wanted to pick people's brains and right. their Rolodexes, which existed at that yeah, time. Cool, right. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, <clears throat> and he asked me to do uh, soccer. Uh, to everybody's amazement, uh, soccer was a huge success. We actually outdrew track and field for the first and maybe only time for all yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, and that's when FIFA kind of opened their eyes and said, wow, maybe we bring the World Cup to the United States. Uh, we won't be embarrassed with empty stadiums. Uh, and so that then led to them awarding the World Cup to the United States. You were all excited about it in hindsight, but did you expect that you would have a $60 million surplus and 64,000 people per game and overcome the cynicism that this shouldn't be in the States? Uh, I didn't expect the details, but I really did expect it was going to be a huge success. Uh, I was aware of the U.S. citizens' love for the big event. And so if we can package this as a big event, which it is, um, it'll catch on. Uh, We also knew that there were a core of ethnic Americans for whom soccer was a passion, uh, and they may not watch a domestic league, uh, but, boy, the World Cup is coming. Yeah. They knew what it was, uh, and so we knew there would be that core. And then if we could combine that with the then-growing uh, group of mostly white suburban youth yeah. uh, and their families, uh, we had a core, and, and then we promoted the daylights out of it. Uh, and, and as I say, I mean, when we took it over, interestingly enough, the, the Soccer Federation was so afraid it would bankrupt the Soccer Federation that they had created a separate entity uh, to run it, uh, which is how we ended up having that $60 million surplus yeah. preserved into a foundation. Because if it stayed in yeah. the Federation, which was, you know, not managed professionally, let's yeah. put it that way. So, uh, r- retrospect, 96 it started, so was that 26 years of, of MLS? Um, Happy with it? Too broad a question, but it's a hard question to, to answer. Look where they are now. Look at the values. We've got some TV contracts, which will determine a lot of the future of the league. you got uh, grassroots programs all over the place. I know you're happy with your accomplishment. Where do you think you, uh, M- U.S. soccer and MLS are right now? Uh, I think they're at a great, great uh, uh, point. I think uh, MLS, as you said, is going into their 26th year, yeah. uh, expanding. They still have major cities and wealthy investors knocking on the door to get teams. Um, You know, there's a couple things that that did it and they've been really disciplined about it. One is we wanted to have strong owners and so they weren't doing (laughs) what happened in my experience in the NASL and having a bunch of well-meaning guys but without the capital, you know, the heavyweights. Where do we get one of those Pelé and Beckenbauer? We don't have them, but we can't afford them. And number two, needed soccer-specific stadiums. We sat there at the beginning and said, you can't play in these 70,000-seat stadiums and you can't play in junior college stadiums and pretend you're major league. Uh, Lamar Hunt really bought into that, built the first one, and now... Almost everybody. And and that's really been been crucial. Uh, It's been growing like crazy. U.S. soccer, obviously, is is really solid... uh, uh, they're going through an interesting little uh, presidential yeah. political race yeah, right now, but, but they'll survive it. Uh, and and uh, they're, they're strong in, in every respect. Uh, the, probably the biggest weakness, and I hope that they can solve it, uh, is getting away from the pay-to-play methodology 
uh, in the youth markets because there are too many uh, kids of uh, lower income uh, and many of those are, are, are kids of color right. uh, that just can't get into the system because yeah. it's between paying what the fees are and then traveling all over the place if you're an elite uh, uh, team. Again, I think MLS is going to be part of the solution because they don't care about pay to play. Right. They, they care, they about, care about developing yeah, yeah, quality exactly players. Right. And, and so I think they're all having their youth teams and academies and I think they'll, they'll do fine. Let's finally end on another high note, 28. Is LA ready for the 28 Olympics? LA's always ready. We're ready yeah. for the 26 World Cup. We're ready yeah, for yeah. the 28 oh, Olympics. Right. Uh, you know, we are blessed here. Yeah. The great thing and one of the reasons that both the Olympics could be financially successful and the World Cup was right. financially successful is we have the facilities. Yeah, right. Everybody else goes broke because they got to spend bajillions yeah. of dollars on capital improvements. We have arenas, stadiums, yeah. airports, hotels, yeah. uh, and then obviously we have all the wonderful entertainment uh, offerings. And uh, I don't know when you're going to broadcast this, but but the weather right now and the second week in February is in the 80s. Doesn't matter. Whenever yeah. broadcast, so, the weather is going to be know, fine. Yeah. LA is just an awesome city. And, yeah, and, and, so. and governance too, and the sports commission. Not just kudos, but sure. the people that I've been speaking with, the you know Garcetti legacy, uh, Richard Reardon, the, the whole mm -hmm. uh, brain trust of the political leadership of LA in the last 40, 50 years understand sports as an economic development tool. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the hats I wear right now. Yeah. is I'm chair of the LA Tourism Board right. and sports is an integral part of that uh, and uh, Kathy Schlossman and the yeah. Sports uh, and Entertainment Commission has this 10-year program to raise r like $100 million to put in bids to make sure we keep the steady flow of Super Bowls, World Cups, All-Star Games uh, and the like coming to LA and then uh, just Sunday here in LA, NASCAR did a race at yeah. the LA Coliseum uh, and it was a huge success. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's a great city for for everything, but particularly for sports. One more quick add-on question, substantively, about the future of revenues to the gaming industry. Uh, not too distant future, LSU is already doing it, Colorado, Michigan State, where gaming will be an important part of collegiate sports as well, right? Absolutely. I think that uh, for years everybody was afraid that it would yeah. contaminate the sport. The, the interesting part is that uh, this gambling has been going on forever, uh, and they've been using the intellectual property of pro teams and colleges uh, yeah. to, to attract the money. Well, why in the heck shouldn't yeah. the, the the teams and the yeah. schools uh, get that? And they're not betting. They don't care who who wins the bet. They're getting a percentage of the handle, yeah. or they're getting in that That's case right. just a sponsorship fee. Sponsorship. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. It, it, believe me, and the other good thing is, is that the players in the sports have been getting so much money that we're taking an awful lot of money to bribe somebody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, if you read the cases about bribery, like in international cricket or even yeah. tennis, it's at the low end. Yeah, that's right. It's you know where no one's yeah. paying attention, and, yeah. and where the athletes aren't getting any money. So yeah. a few bucks <laughs> could tempt them. We could do this for hours, but the one thing that I find uh, always refreshing with Alan Rothenberg is there's not enough space on that head for all of the hats that you wear. The industry is blessed. Really appreciate the time you're spending, Alan. Thank you very well, much. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. It's really yeah. great to have people who really understand what our industry is all about, and it's terrific. Alan Rothenberg gives us some perspective that nobody has. Certainly, when we talk about soccer in the United States, he is the unmitigated father, grandfather, whatever you want to call him. He is critically important to the sport. How about the Sports Tech Minute? 
Interwetten signed a major deal with Liverpool to become their sports betting operator. The Vienna-based provider will be able to provide Liverpool soccer fans with unique entertainment and brands experience. The development always includes long-term partnerships. It was signed with the help of Onside Sports GmbH as a massive achievement for the company and one that is going to be a significant development for all concerned. Interwetten has a plethora of partners across NHL, PDC, as well as the Austrian Ski Federation and the German Ski Federation. PDC, one of its largest and latest partners, as the two parties signed a multi-year agreement back in February. How about your sports gambling minute? And we turn to Ohio. The betting application window set to open June 15. The Ohio Casino Control Commission announced they begin accepting sports betting licenses for type ABC properties. Applications will be available on June 1. The submission uh, includes uh, all issues and all entrepreneurs and all sports books, but it closes on July 15. The categories cover Ohio's biggest potential sports wagering venues, including professional sports stadiums and existing casinos. The commission also revealed it'll have a universal go-live date, plans to launch any approved operators on the same date. Though state law mandates that sports betting be live by January 1 of next year, it's possible that the regulators could approve the operations even sooner. The application window for Type C sports gaming hosts and second designated mobile management, July 15 and August 15, they certainly have their timing act together. And then finally, let's conclude with our Good Sports 5 as we normally do. Cisco and the APGA Tour come together and, and uh, bolster diversity and inclusion in golf. The obvious commitment is the Cisco invitation at Invitational at Baltusrol with the APGA and other players significantly involved thanks to the help of Cisco. Megan Rapino joins HR company Trusaic to help ID workplace pay disparities. NBA star Stephen Curry invested last year in Sidio another HR software focusing on analyzing salaries to identify pay disparities across different demographics. The Players Association of the WNBA and Sabrina Inescu enter the NFT space. Involved with Phoenix Suns guard Devin Booker, uh, tennis pro Coco Goff, Colin Maraca, Justin Herbert, and others, the Future Is campaign, a Web3 brand, founded by Tom Brady. Ionescu's NFTs can be viewed on Autograph.io and acquired by the DraftKings marketplace. Canelo Alvarez bit off a little more than he can chew as Russian star Dmitry Bivol defeated the Mexican superstar. We'll see where he goes next. And then finally, Rory McIlroy gets two top five finishes under his belt. He'll start at PJ Southern Hills before the U.S. Open in Brookline. Obviously, golf philanthropy, the political issues regarding the Saudi tour, all coming up on future installments. Well, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank Alan Rothenberg for giving of his time, energy, vision, and entrepreneurialism. We'd like to thank Nick Nielsen for helping us put the show together. would like to thank all of the others for helping in the distribution. And you for listening and watching. Join us next time when we go inside the $1.3 trillion business of the sports. 
I'm the sports professor, Rick Parle. See you soon.